the pearl of the parables. That's what the parable of the prodigal son, as it is best known, is called at times. The pearl of the parables. Powerful, poignant, a beautiful, beautiful parable indeed. Especially to the point at which we concluded our thoughts about this parable last Sunday morning. As we're looking at the importance of those who are lost and reclaiming those precious lost souls. The preciousness of one soul as depicted by the three parables that are given here by Jesus in Luke chapter 15. That every soul is precious to God and therefore if we're God's people every soul must be precious to us. We have seen what prompted these parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost boy or the prodigal son as we studied the parable of the prodigal last Sunday morning. It was prompted by the repeated criticism, the criticism that was so repeatedly leveled at the Christ by the scribes and the Pharisees of his day, criticizing him on this occasion because he was receiving sinners and eating with them. Verse 2, and so verse 3 says, so he spoke this parable to them. And thus he gave the parable of the lost sheep. Beautiful and tender depiction of the retrieval of that lost sheep and the bringing home in rejoicing that lost sheep, laying it on his shoulders, the shepherd does, with tenderness, and brings it home and rejoices. And then the lost coin, and then finally the lost boy, or the prodigal son. And oh, how indeed the parable of the prodigal son encourages us to recognize and realize that There is no one who can stray so far, who can sink so deeply into sin, that he cannot be retrieved by the Father in terms of the Father's desire to retrieve him. And yet we've also seen in that parable that it is incumbent upon the one who has sunk that deeply into sin to come to himself, as the parable depicts the prodigals having done, come to himself and to realize his lost condition and to determine to come home. But when that determination is made, as it was with the prodigal, and when the realization hit him that he had sunk so deeply and wandered so far and had sinned so grievously against his father and against the God of heaven, he determined, I'm going home. And when I go home, I'm not going to say, Father, if I have done anything wrong, please forgive me. No, there would be no hesitation. There would be no equivocation. It would be, Father, I have sinned. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Remember, he determined in verse 19 of our study in Luke 15, make me like one of your hired servants. Remember the contrast we pointed out? Remember back at verse 12 when he wanted his inheritance now. He was a young man who was independent. He wanted everything this life could give him materially. He wanted the good life as he viewed it. And he wanted that portion of his inheritance that was coming to him ultimately. He wanted it now. And so the father divided the inheritance to both him and to the elder son. And so in verse 12 it was give me 
Give me, give me, give me. And yet when he came to himself, it was, make me. Make me as one of your servants. Oh, what a contrast. Oh, what a change had occurred in the life of this young man. And oh, what an occasion for rejoicing when he came home. And as he came home, we noted last time that the father, it seems, had oft looked in the direction that he knew he had taken when he left and had dreamed and had no doubt prayed that one day he could see that young son of his who had left on that road, that one day perhaps he would see him coming home. Because the parable says, while he was still a great way off, the father spotted him, saw him, saw him coming home, and had compassion and did what? And ran. Will God run? We asked last week. Will God run? Yes. Because you see, the Father here depicts for us, typifies the Father in heaven. Therefore, it's appropriate to ask, will God run? And to answer in the affirmative, yes, He will. He will run to welcome home His wayward son, his wayward daughter, his wayward child, who comes to himself or herself and says, I'm going home. It will not be with reluctance that the Heavenly Father welcomes that child home. It will be with eagerness as he runs to meet that child, falls on his neck, and kissed him. And the son said just what he had determined he was going to say. I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But then the last part, as we noted last time, of the statement he had determined to say when he said, make me as one of your servants, he never said it. Why? Perhaps because the father in his exuberance interrupted him at this point, verse 22, but the father said to his servant, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. It may very well have been that the son never had the opportunity to say, make me as one of your hired servants because the father interrupted him and welcomed him home with great joy. And he said, for this my son was dead. And as we noted, one can be alive and dead at the same time. In fact, everyone who is living and breathing but not living a faithful Christian life is dead while he or she lives. My son was dead, he said, and is alive again, was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Oh, you can almost picture the celebration, can't you, and the exuberance and the joy that characterizes this company of individuals as they are making merry. And as we said last time, if the parable ended here, what a beautifully positive ending it would be. But it doesn't end here. And it may very well be that the major point of the parable is yet to be studied. 
because keep in mind what prompted these parables in Luke 15. It was the scribes and the Pharisees who were criticizing Jesus because he was eating with the tax collectors and the sinners among them. A group of Jews with whom the Pharisees and scribes would have nothing to do. They hated them. And they hated Jesus for loving them. And now we get to the real climax of this parable and the application that we should make to it in our own lives today. Verse 25 tells us, Now his older son was in the field. Well, that's a good thing. That's a good thing in and of itself, isn't it? It indicates how industrious the elder son was. He had never left home. He did not ask for all of his inheritance to be given to him prematurely, as did the younger son. And he was going about his daily duties. Keep that word duty in mind, because that is going to be crucial to our points about the elder son. Yes, he was in the field doing his duty. He was about his father's business in one sense of the word. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Now, just an aside here, this is no no approval of of dancing, uh, which we disapprove of in modern times and have preached against in terms of the dancing that is obviously contrary to God's will. This word actually comes from the word uh, from which we get our word chorus a company of singers and dancers, and it would certainly have in no way even approximated the modern dance and the dance that is so clearly opposed to the teaching of Scripture. And the fact that it's simply mentioned, regardless of the dancing, does not mean Jesus approves of any dancing, though this would not have been anything more likely than simply whirling and twirling and jumping up and down, most likely, as is the case with other references to dancing in biblical times, but the Lord just simply mentions it as a point in the parable, something that was taking place. And so he heard this music and dancing, and obviously the music is primarily what he heard. It's doubtful that he could hear the dancing as such, per se, literally, but he heard the celebration, in other words. And so what? He immediately thought something Wonderful has happened here. I'm going to rush right in and see what it is. And go to my father and ask him why the cause of the celebration. Be prepared to join in. There's something wrong in the very next statement here, I think. And this is it. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Let me ask you. Why? Why did he call one of the servants and ask what these things meant? Could this already be an indication of the strained relationship that he had with his father from his perspective, that is? Why wouldn't you just go on in if you had the kind of close relationship with your father and everything was that good? Why wouldn't you go see for yourself? Why would you stand off and call one of the servants 
to you to ask what these things meant. To me, that raises a question as to the attitude of the elder son. Now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to fail to give him the benefit of the doubt, but I don't have to because I'm going to learn very quickly just what his attitude was, tragically. And that perhaps this incident where he calls for the servant is not just simply coincidental, but perhaps does reveal something about the relationship. Because verse 27, the servant said to him, Your brother has come. Think about what those two words, your brother, should have evoked when he, the elder son, heard those words. Your brother. You've had a brother who left home. You have had a brother that you didn't know whether or not he was alive or dead. You didn't know what had happened to him. And now you suddenly learn your brother has come. Your brother has come. What kind of emotion should that have evoked? The same kind it did with the father. The same kind of emotion that I suspect was the emotion the servant himself was probably feeling. The servant didn't say, this other son of your father's has come. (laughs) That's what we're going to see coming from the elder brother shortly. But he said, your brother, your brother's home. One could almost anticipate the exuberance with the servant himself, who, because of the kind of man the father was, would have been treated so well by the father, would have been a well-treated servant who would have had respect and love for, for the head of that household, the father, and would have rejoiced, no doubt, with his master, that the master's younger son had come and had, having seen the joy that characterized that old man, The servant himself would have been excited, I suspect. And so we can almost hear the joy in the, Your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. And what do we see in verse 28? But he was angry. And when you look at the word in the original for angry there, it does not mean he was a little bit irritated. He was enraged. He was enraged by what he had heard. He was beside himself with anger. Sound like the scribes and Pharisees who began this whole thing with their criticism? Oh yes, and it's intended to sound like the scribes and Pharisees because it describes them and the scribes and Pharisees of today. But he was angry and would not go in. Well, obviously at this point, the servant does go back in. That's implied by the next statement. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. Therefore, we conclude the servant must have gone in and told the father, your other son won't come in. Now, think about the feeling of that father at that very point when he heard those words. 
He was in the midst of the greatest celebration, perhaps, that he had had since maybe those boys were born into the world. And he saw them for the first time as newborn babes. And one of them he thought was dead, is alive, and has come home. And instead of having the other one come in and rejoice, he gets word from the servant. He won't come in. And no doubt, the servant may have given him, given him enough details to let him know that he was extremely angry when he heard about it. You know, there's another point here. Think about the example of that elder brother who was supposed to be faithful to the father and claims that he has been. A little bit later on, we'll see that affirmation, that statement. Think about that kind of example he was to that servant with his anger, with his attitude. It's a reminder of how powerful influence is and how important our example is to others. What kind of example are we setting before others by our attitudes about various things? Obviously, this elder son didn't think a thing about that. And now, he obviously had not thought about what this news that the servant brought to his father was going to do to his father. Don't you think he knew that his father was going to be deeply disappointed upon hearing that his elder son would not even come in to the celebration but was angry? You're talking about putting a damper on things as we express it. No doubt that did. But the father, the father did not send the servant back and say, fine, that's fine. If that's the way he feels about it, you go tell him to stay in the field. No. Because keep in mind who the Father here represents. The Father represents the Heavenly Father. And so this Father, when he hears this news, came out, latter part of verse 28, and pleaded with him. And the tense there indicates call after call, plea after plea. In other words, literally the text says he kept on pleading with him. That's important. Because God doesn't call us one time, as it were, and then forget about us through the gospel. He calls through the gospel, but that call is a continual call, isn't it? For as long as we have the gospel... And for as long as we have those who've obeyed the gospel and who will go out and call others to the truth on behalf of Jesus, in other words, as his disciples, as we should do, and as we talked about in Bible class this morning, that our personal responsibility is to do that, then the continual call is there. God keeps on pleading. Just as the father here kept on pleading with his elder son, the elder son represents the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus said to them in Matthew 23, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees! Time and time again, he did not mince words when he condemned their actions, but he loved their souls. And he kept on pleading, and he wept over them. In Luke 19, remember verse 41 beginning, he approached the city of Jerusalem, and he looked on that city, and he wept over it. He wept over it and expressed, if you had just known the time of your visitation, 
and yet you're going to be destroyed. This city will be leveled to the ground. Not one stone will be left upon another, and it could have all been avoided if you had simply responded to my continual pleas with you. Yes, with you whom I know will crucify me. I know you're going to kill me. And yet I'm crying over you and pleading with you to come to me. Now there's the picture. There's the picture that is painted by the word pleaded as the New King James renders it here in verse 28. He kept on pleading. And what was the response? So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. Self-righteousness enters the picture here on the part of the son. Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. Self-righteousness. Look at me. Look at what I've been doing. But we need to ask, why had he been doing it? Why had he been doing it? It's already become evident that he had not been doing it for the right reasons. And Jesus has never been happy with people doing the right thing for the wrong reason. He has been hard on hypocrisy throughout Scripture. And that's what we're dealing with here. Self-satisfaction, self-righteousness. I'm fine. Look at me. Look what I have done. I've never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet what? Now here comes self-pity. Here comes poor, pitiful me. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. Now remember, the fatted calf had been killed for the prodigal son's return. And the contrast that he draws here seemingly is, not only have you never killed the fatted calf, which maybe he was hoping was one day going to be his when all this estate finally became his, then we'll kill the fatted calf for me. But you've already killed it. You've already killed the fatted calf and you have never at one time given me a kid, as some translations render it, a young goat, as the New King James says. You've never given me a young goat, let alone the fatted calf, that I might make merry with my friends. Well, keep in mind that the estate had already been divided. Everything basically, two-thirds, remember the double portion to the firstborn, as the book of Deuteronomy points out. And so the prodigal had already been given everything. He had liquidated his assets, no doubt, and taken them with him and had squandered them. Doesn't expect anything now as he comes home in deep penitence for his sin. And the elder brother has it all that's left. You don't think he could have killed a calf anytime he wanted to and had a party if that's what he wanted to do? And so obviously the accusation is not a valid one. And his words are filled with self-satisfaction, self-righteousness, and, and self-pity. And now listen to verse 30. But as soon as this son of yours came... who can you hear that? Of course you can. 
as soon as this son of yours, well, I can almost, I can just about, I'm sure, get the intonation of the voice from those words. He doesn't say, but as soon as my brother came home, he never refers to him as his brother. How much concern had he exhibited when his brother left in the first place? Not much indication that he did based on his attitude now at least. If he was sorrowful when his brother left, he has gotten over it completely, hadn't he? To the extent that now he will not even acknowledge him as his brother. He's no brother of mine. He's a son of yours, but he's no brother of mine. You think Jesus wants to see anything here? Wants us to see anything here? Of course he does. Something vitally important. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood, is that perhaps a statement designed to prejudice the thinking of the father? Who has devoured your livelihood. Think about it, father. Think about what he's done. This one you're welcoming in such a big way and have killed the fatted calf for has devoured your livelihood. Well, in a sense that may be true, but it was his own livelihood in another sense, was it not? Because he was ultimately going to get one-third of the inheritance of his father and his father agreed to give it to both of them early, as the young son requested. So really, in a sense, it was his livelihood. Why does the elder son call it your livelihood? Perhaps to remind the father that look what he's done to you. Look what you're doing for him, but look what he's done to you. What an attitude. Devoured your livelihood with harlots. Now, prostitutes. There's not a thing in this parable that says to us specifically that the prodigal son was involved with prostitutes. This may be true. It may be true, but how would the elder son have known that? How would he have known that? He wouldn't have. So it may be true, but there's no indication in the parable that it was. But here's an assumption on his part that he's been involved with prostitutes. And so when he comes, you kill the fatted calf for him. Now notice verse 31 again and again, the attitude of the father. He says to him what? Son, tender expression in the word. Son, still indicating the love that he has for the elder son despite the rotten attitude that he has now manifested. And yet he still refers to him in a tender way and pleads with him still. Son, think about this in effect. He's saying, son, you are always with me. We have that beautiful, continual relationship, that familial relationship. We're family. We're together always. We have occasion to rejoice every day together. Isn't that true in the family of God? Those who are faithful to the family of God are just that. They are family with everything that that suggests and with the closeness of that relationship and everything that that dictates to us as to what our attitude should be toward one another. You're always with me and all that I have 
is yours. That's a reminder to us spiritually today in the family of God of everything that is available to us through the family of God by being a part of the family over which Christ is the head, the church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. All spiritual blessings are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do we appreciate them? Do we take them for granted? Everything is ours. It's reminiscent of a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 from the pen of the Apostle Paul where in verses 21 and 22 of that chapter he wrote to the Corinthian church, Therefore let no one glory in men, for all things are yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, Peter, or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. That's where we are if we're members of the body of Christ today. You see those at Corinth, remember what some of them were doing back in the first chapter? Some were saying, I am of Paul, I am of Cephas, I am of Apollos, I am of Christ. Is Christ divided, Paul asked on that occasion? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? In other words, you were baptized into Christ where all spiritual blessings are found, where you have Paul and you have Cephas and you have Apollos and you have Christ, you have all spiritual blessings. And that's what the father is reminding the elder son about. Son, you haven't left those blessings. You've been here. You've been able to be with me day in and day out, and all that I have is yours. We're family. All that I have is yours. And then he simply states, it was right that we should make merry and be glad. It was right. There's no apology that is necessary here on the part of the father to the elder son. He hasn't wronged the elder son at all. And he very gently but firmly reminds him here, Without equivocation, it was right that we do this. It was right that we should make merry and be glad. And really, that's an indictment of the Son in itself, isn't it? It's a tender way of doing it. But he's indicting the elder son in the process. Because wasn't it obvious at this point that the elder son didn't think they should have done this? Of course. And yet the father now says it was right that we do it. It was right that we should make Mary and be glad for, listen to it again, your brother. He doesn't say now, now that he knows fully what the attitude of the elder son is, he doesn't say, for my son was dead. No. He still has two sons. Your brother. Your brother was dead. You still have a brother. He was reminding him. I have two sons and you still have a brother. He was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. And that's it. That's the end of the parable. What was the outcome? We're not given the outcome. We don't know whether the elder son changed his mind or not. We know that the scribes and the Pharisees throughout the ministry of Jesus, for the most part, kept on criticizing. 
kept on trying to entrap him. And as they did, he kept on what? Pleading with them. Pleading with them to come home to the Father. And so, as one perceptive writer asked, who is the prodigal after all? The young son left home, but he came back. The elder son never left and was lost at home. And that writer put it this way. He locked himself out of the banquet. He locked himself out of the banquet. And the key that he lost was love. He locked himself out of the banquet. And the key that he lost was love. We're not told whether they ever found it again. But it is certainly a reminder, as we mentioned earlier, that it is not simply enough to do our duty if we're doing it for the wrong reason, but that God has always been concerned with the motivation for what we do. And the lukewarm, the nominal child of God has never been nor ever can be pleasing to God. Our love must prompt us to do God's will. And as important as sonship is to our salvation, listen to it, brotherhood is equally essential. And the appreciation for that brotherhood and the love for our brothers and our sisters. Remember many of the words of John in 1 John, the epistle we're studying now on Sunday nights? Listen again to 1 John 3, 14, beginning. We, have, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. In that 18th verse, John is saying, don't ever tell anybody you love them. Of course, we do it all the time. I hope we do. But don't do it only in word or in tongue, but also in deed, by actions, by truth. And make sure that those actions are motivated by love. Yes, as crucial as sonship is to our salvation, brotherhood and love for the brotherhood is also crucial. What about you this morning? Where is your heart? That's a key question. 
especially as we review the thoughts about the elder brother. Where was his heart? His heart was not in the work that he that he was doing continually for his father. Oh, he was doing it. He was doing it, but why? And the why is absolutely crucial. What about that why where you're concerned? Obviously, if you haven't obeyed the gospel of Christ, then you have not allowed the love of Christ to motivate you to obey. As we would plead with you, as the Father continually pleads with you through his word, to see that love and to respond to that love in loving obedience by believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, repenting of your sins, confessing him to be the Christ, and being buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. And while this parable in the latter part of it stands in judgment of the hypocrite, the nominal Christian, the one who's going through the motions, the one who's not loving as he or she should, it also stands as a beacon of hope to the prodigals who have left, but who can come to themselves and say, I'm coming home. And that may be where you are this morning, needing to come home. We plead with you, come to yourself, and then come home to the Father as we stand to sing to encourage you.